podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to 99.94, the sound of cricket. Download our app for all our podcasts and commentary. Our shows include Red Inca and Double Century, which are hosted by me, plus shows on the West Indies, England, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and India. You can find them all via our social media at 9994DM or by searching in your podcast or YouTube places for the name of your team and 99.94, where we talk cricket. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. All right, let us get this party started with Will, who says, what's your opinion on England releasing their testing days before the start? I don't see any benefits, only the negative effect of giving Pakistan more time to prepare now they know exactly who they're up against. That didn't work particularly well, that side of your theory, Will. But yes, I agree. Uh, um, I I did a whole video about it once and I had a, a player get very upset about it. And he was saying, you know, analysts do all this work beforehand, so it doesn't really matter. And I was like, yeah. But when you are an analyst and you're sitting up in front of a group and you're saying, uh, these are probably the top six batters compared to these are definitely the top six, there's a big difference between buy-in. And I've had situations where we've given information, players gone out in the field, literally running out on the field, suddenly looking up at the team sheet, getting confused, running back off to ask me questions. it's not quite as bad in a test match just because of the way the messages are passed. It's not like a T20 game where one or two bad overs, you know, can cost you the whole thing. But I don't see the point of it. I can't, I can't see why you would ever tell anyone what your team is going to be beforehand. Why give them any tactical advantage at all? Um, so I'm with you, Will. It, it, it seems to me to have come from uh, the press asking for it. And I don't mean the press asking for it as in, um, uh, you know, the press saying, uh, we would like the team sheet a day early. But the game, the day before a game, that is the most asked question, I would say, at English press conferences. And they seem to be the team who does it the most, although I think New Zealand has started to do it as well. Other teams have started to do it at times as if to show themselves of, um, like that they've got a steady lineup. But it just it doesn't make any sense to me. It also, it takes away flexibility. It makes you look panicked if you make a decision on the morning of the game. And you may not have been panicked. You may have been waiting to see what the pitch was going to be like on the morning of the game, what the conditions were going to be like, or all those sorts of things. So I just don't understand uh, the idea behind it. Will Cooling says, as a noted England fan, yeah, I was called an England fan today. Weird. Um, How happy are you with their performance against Pakistan? Look, I think for me, the next two years of their test team could be two of the most interesting years that, you know, of any team that, you know, when, when I did my history of, of test cricket, um, the unauthorized biography available in no good bookshops. Um, the one thing I really noticed was after world war two, how other than the, the brief cutter period where they had a lot of cutter bowlers, there really was no great period of cricket, uh, from England that shaped the game. And that was interesting. We now have two. You know, we have this white ball, mostly one day, but maybe T20 might follow it after what we've seen um, at last World Cup. 
and we've got this test theory, right? It means that they are interesting for the first time in a very, very long time. When England, India, and Australia are interesting, it's, for me personally, much easier because so many people are covering them and there's so many little bits and threads and, and everything. Whereas if another team is interesting, by the time it's almost impossible to pull the information out without sitting a bunch of the players or the coaches down. So I think it is really interesting. Also, just from a test perspective, you know, I did a podcast on this, what, three years ago, I think, um, where, so, where I got someone on from Australia who was a football statistician. Aussie rules football. He'd seen that the averages had swapped between te um, test runs and ODI runs for the first time. And his question was, why don't you bat like ODI cricket? And I said, well, here are all the reasons why. I still think that holds for England, weirdly enough, because when the pitches have been, or sorry, when the conditions have been normal test conditions, they have had to play normal test cricket. The minute the test conditions have been either through the softball or the flat pitch in Royal Pindi, they have the ability to do that. That kind of makes more sense, doesn't it? My big theory originally was that it would fail if they tried to do it all the time, which as I have been pretty clear with, that's not even what McCullum did as a batter. So it'd be weird if England did go down that route. But I think that's what people, a lot of people thought was going to happen, maybe because of the way that Ben Stokes has been batting. But um, I, I just think that Almost every in, uh, England test match at the moment is interesting to the game and not just to the, the, the fans who are watching it. And I think that's I mean, kind of what you want, a couple of teams to be able to do that. Uh, Will Cooling, oh wait. Uh, Will Cooling says, uh, does England get enough credit for being innovators in cricket administration? England has a reputation for being dour, unimaginative, but actually a lot of the major changes began in England. Um, 20? Uh, so I suppose it depends on what you mean by major changes. Um, so I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit confused. I mean, you know, the hundred, but there was already a T10 competition at that point, and also the hundred is just a T20 competition with a couple of balls shaved off. Um, I mean, their administration has been pretty dour for long periods of the game. You know, um, the cap situation in county cricket and uh, not giving their international players contracts when you know other countries had and all those sorts of things so i'm not sure i see them as progressive i mean if you lined up a bunch of things and i can have a look at them um, but off the top of my head uh, i think they were a bit like cricket australia they've been slightly and new zealand i suppose slightly ahead of the the game uh, when it comes to being professional and so that allows you to look like you're uh slightly ahead but you know, they were still wearing whites and Red Bull until what, 1998. Uh, so it's hard to say that they're massively ahead of the game. T20 cricket was just another, you know, John Player League didn't work anymore. So they were trying a different version of the John Player League for a different time slot. Yeah, it, you know, it's a bit like, it, it's a bit like, you know, a sporting team, you know, drafting a player that they don't think is that good. And that player ends up to be one of the best, most important players of all time. You get credit for drafting them because you, you thought there was something in it but it's not quite what you were trying to do with that, that situation. Um, so I think, you know, if you lined up a bunch and I could have a look at it, but I, I haven't, I mean, I, I think they've been professional in an era where a lot of the other cricket boards haven't been professional. So they definitely, um, I, I like that, but I'm not sure I see them as massively progressive um, innovators. Christopher says, how much impact is the UAE 10 league actually um, having? Uh, 
actually happening. Teams have geographical location names like the Chennai Braves, but does anyone in Chennai follow? Okay. Oh, okay. There's a New York team, which I find funny because I'm sure it's the talk of Times Squares. I like T10 and the squads are good, but I struggle to get enthusiastic, enthusiastic watching a comp in empty stadiums using team names that no one actually cares about. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know the full situation with that. Um, I think I was offered a job in, it must have been that league, I suppose, a couple of years ago. And it, it, I, from chatting to them, I couldn't even work out if they thought it was a joke league or not. So it's a really weird situation, I think, that particular tournament. Uh, and you, and I, I've been the same, you know, that having these different team names is, it's a confusing league from that perspective. And I'm not sure there's a way around it. I, I actually, I've been thinking about this a little bit recently. If you're not going to play these leagues in those areas, so chances are, you know, you're not going to have a league that's going to play in both Chennai and New York. <laughs> um, if you're not going to have that, are you better off having your team having a nickname, you know, uh, I don't know, is there, I'm trying to think of a, a, I'm probably missing an obvious sporting team, um, you know, that, that has that, but do you need it to be tied to a location if there is no location? Is there a way of doing it from a branding and a marketing perspective that is completely um, separate to everyone else? Um, and we haven't seen that in sport, but in T20 cricket, as you said, you've got an empty stadium with Chennai on your shirt. Maybe people in Chennai are watching it. Are there more? Uh, I can't remember the squads. Are there more Chennai players in the squad? You know, I mean, that would be the only way you'd really get a huge um, bump on the figures. So uh, I think from that perspective, I, I just think the whole thing and a lot of these pop-up leagues, they're just odd. And I think there are probably better ways of doing it. And at the moment, it's maybe trapped between the old way and the new way, if that makes sense. And James says, how transformative for women's cricket was Zoe Goss's dismissal of Brian Lara? Uh, so for those who don't know, it was, ooh, was it David Boone or Dean Jones' charity game? Well, the Alan Border charity game. I can't remember, but a tribute game, uh, you know, that they they used to play them on TV. There was about three or four of them, I think, played on TV. They were quite big deals in Australia. And in one of them, Zoe Goss uh, dismisses uh, Brian Lara caught behind. Uh, I think it was Ian Healy. might have been up at the stumps. Good catch. So that's what uh, James is asking about. And then he says, do you think it's somewhat overrated compared to less visible grassroots building efforts and the playing of actual women's cricket matches or is the mainstream visibility the whole point? Um, I mean, it's not that transformative in that I don't think it was outside of it happening originally. I don't think it changed women's cricket in the world. Like it, I don't think it had, you know, Harman Preet innings is way bigger Um you know, and Elise Perry bowling on a broken leg, a far bigger for women's cricket uh, in what they have managed to be able to do than probably what Zoe Goss did. But if you go back to that period and you watch women's cricket, um, it was players playing in skirts. Um, it, it Very rarely did they have cameras. They weren't taken seriously as athletes at all. Zoe Goss coming in, getting a wicket. The fact that she was an all-rounder as well, I know that sounds really weird, but... It's almost like that added more to, to the story that, oh, she can bat as well. Uh, so in Australia alone, and if you have a look at the professionalism of women's cricket and the organisational structure of women's cricket, Australia probably does get a bit of a push at that stage. But it wasn't like Zoe Goss takes Brian Lara and the next year Channel 9 are streaming all the women's games on TV. So look, they, all these things play a part. There's all these little things that have happened. Um, you know, the huge crowd in Eden Gardens in what was it, late 90s, whatever year that World Cup was played. Um, 
was huge. The original women World Cup, you know, having a World Cup before the men was quite a big thing. England women getting the um, England women getting really bit good and then becoming professionals. Then, uh, then obviously that women's big bash um, on the back of that. Like, there's been a lot of moments, but I think Zoe Goss plays into that. But I do think it's more of an Australian narrative. Um, like, I don't know how much news it got outside of the original thing happening, but I think certainly in Australia. Uh, it made people probably look at women's cricket a lot differently than they would have the year before, which is interesting because, you know, Australia had Catherine Fitzpatrick, you know, who probably still arguably is one of the quickest women who have ever, ever bowled. Um, and, you know, Belinda Clark, of course, who was absolutely incredible. They just didn't cut through. And the average cricket, you know, 90% of male uh, cricket fans who watch male cricket wouldn't have known any names beyond probably those two names for a long period. Zoe Goss gave them a third name, but more importantly than that, she gave them, you know, a wicket on TV. Um, but I don't think it changed the trajectory of women's cricket because I think that what you have seen is that cricket is actually being very late to women's sport. And a lot of it comes through advertisers and TV companies, probably more advertisers. Um, but, you know, the, the women's hundred, the reason it was given that sort of equal billing with the men's hundred was because the advertisers are like, well, we can't, you know, we want to advertise on both. We want to be seen as helping both. And in fact, it's very hard to get big money for women's uh, sport. It's not that hard to get sponsorship for women's sport. And one of the reasons is, is that companies, you know, I, I remember talking to a company once who was, they were, I can't remember the sport, it might have been women's hockey. And they were sponsoring that and they sponsored a lot of men's sports as well. And they were sort of saying, and I was saying, it, it just seems like a weird choice to me. Like, I'm, 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 for all I know, women's hockey is huge, but it doesn't seem to be on the TV that much. Obviously, you see it a little bit at Olympics and, and Commonwealth Games, maybe the World Championship. And they were saying, yeah, but we, we then build a proper relationship with these uh, people. We can uh, help the sport actually grow, which is different than just giving men's sport a bunch of money and getting some revenue back, um, you know, hopefully getting some revenue back through, for, through the advertising. We actually get more through women's sport. And so... A lot of advertisers and companies in that sort of way are thinking very differently. Um, now, that is probably the biggest change that's happened to women's cricket. The other one is the Olympics. You know, when they first tried to get cricket into the Olympics, the Olympics are like, you've got four women's teams who are any good. And at the time, that was probably fair. It might have been three at that time. Um, and so they had to go off and get a lot better. Uh, so there's so many little things that happen. But I think Zoe Goss deserves to be part of that because it, it was – quite a moment it's not like the billy jean king um versus the old fella it's not quite that level but the fact is you couldn't ignore that zoe goss could play cricket because it was right in front of you aditya says uh, once a women's ipl starts do you see a similar pattern emerging as in the men's game where an ipl owners would start to buy teams in other leagues like the cpl and maybe even the fair break international and at what point do you think cricket australia would open up bbl teams to private ownership all right so so the women's game, yeah, I think, I mean, fair break is set up for this. And the CPL, I would assume, is set up for this as well. Uh, I talked to Sean Martin about the fair, about fair break. He wants to have two tournaments a year. I would think that would fit the, this kind of idea. So if you did, let's say you had two fair breaks uh, and you also had, I don't know, the CPL or the 100 um, and the obviously the IPL and you can own teams and all of them. It goes back to what I was just saying a minute ago. If you're, if you're a business, uh, you, you know, you probably don't have to spend that much money to get a lot out of um, sponsoring women's cricket. And, you know, I, 
I, I think that, you know, if you're the Ambani family or, you know, you know, one of those ridiculously wealthy sort of things, you could also be seen as sort of the savior of, not the savior, it's the wrong word, isn't it? But the, the booster of, of women's cricket uh, globally, which helps your brand, which helps everything else. And then you can use all the women in your advertising and, and you know, all those sorts of things matter. So I do see that as a very decent uh, possibility going ahead. The BBL stuff, I'm not sure if you mean BBL or WBBL or both. Uh, and, you know, we've just seen that article with the 100, uh, which, you know, I've talked about um, a little bit before. But, uh, you know, it, it was my understanding that the 100s already had conversations with IPL owners, uh, at least one, but I think two. And so there has certainly been advanced discussions about the 100. Big Bash, I reckon we're on about a year third generation of chat about the Big Bash going private. I don't see how it helps the Big Bash that much in Australia. I could be wrong. I just feel, I don't, I don't know. I think it's going to give a lot more complications. In some ways it might be better because it will separate international cricket and franchise cricket because I don't think the I don't think you'd buy a, a Big Bash franchise and not want David Warner and Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins to play, right? So maybe that will actually solve one of the problems that Cricket Australia currently has. But uh, I, you know, I'm not sure that that league is ever going to be so big that it's going to be worth having ownership in it. I could be wrong. This is how I always sort of saw the Big Bash. And I think Cricket Australia saw it as the next IPL. And I saw it as more like this. And it, it had a little upswing where it looked like it would go well beyond where I ever thought it would. And now it's sort of dipped back. Things can change, of course. I still think if it had its own window outside of international cricket, that would certainly change. Um, if you had more international players, that would be quite interesting. All these things can still bump it up to a higher level. I'm just not sure it's worthy of overseas investment uh, and, unless you want to use it as a talent factory. And I think it would be quite an expensive talent factory, you know, in comparing that to South Africa and, um, and, and the West Indies and some of the other places. So if it's WBBL, I actually think it does make more sense uh, to do that. Now, whether that means that Cricket Australia no longer has control over their women cricketers in the same way and that might bring other problems, I don't know. But I would think that, I could really see how that could be really interesting. Uh, and that would be a really interesting business model going forward as well. But I don't think that Cricket Australia is, as, as far as I'm aware, and I, I haven't been to Australia for a while, so you bump into people and you get the feeling a little bit better. You know, I can text message them, but, I, it, you know, they're just going to say yes or no on that sort of thing. Um, I don't get the feeling that it's massively close to privatisation. However, if they had an announcement next summer saying it, I also wouldn't be surprised if that makes sense. So at the moment, I don't feel like there's a huge movement to make it. There are certainly people within Cricket Australia who feel that way, but I don't feel that like we're minutes away from having it happened. But I also think if you look at the overall position of Australian cricket, it wouldn't surprise me if they do that. I wonder if it's almost a better situation to not do it at the moment, uh, just so that you don't make yourself into another what, franchise uh Beta league for the IPL, um, you know, you could have something slightly different going on. But, but you know, I'd have to look at the business model of, of all those sorts of things. Ian says, uh, David Murray, the West Indies wicketkeeper, died this week yeah, uh, in pretty sad circumstances and isn't the only uh, West Indian who toured South African to suffer this fate. And most people would agree that the Rebel tours to South Africa were absolutely wrong and should not have happened. But who are the money men behind them and what happened to them? Oh, James has actually answered some of this. Uh, yeah, South African um, brewery sponsored uh, some of the tours. Uh, some of the money came from the government. I think some come from private benefactors. Uh, look, I, 
in some ways it's no different than what you might get in a, a country town um, that has, you know, a good high school football team or, a, you know, Aussie rules team and you've got a couple of people around who have money, you know, they're, they're watching their sport and their town not have what they want. So they spend money and bring people in. Endeavour Hills is an incredible story, um, uh, which is probably, uh, you know, if anyone wants to ask about that later, I could go into that. But uh, in in this case, yeah, it was uh, the South African government wanted obviously people to embrace. Uh, is embargo the right word? The blackballing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, people in, in South African cricket were frustrated. They kind of they had done one political gesture in the early seventies. After that, they just kind of sat back and did nothing. Uh, they'd spent a lot of time trying to get people over there. The, the second Women's World Cup was almost played in South Africa. Uh, there was obviously Don Bradman wanted a uh, South African tour of Australia to go ahead. So there were, there was, it wasn't, they were cut off, but it wasn't as clear. In fact, when you look at it, it you know, one of the, the, I think one of the most interesting sporting events ever, and I, I was going to cover this uh, for a radio show I did with John Norman on Talk Sport, but we got cancelled, uh, was I really wanted to cover the Davis Cup where India um, played, uh, was supposed to play South Africa in the Davis Cup. What a remarkable story that was. That must have been, what, 74, 70? So well after Basil D'Oliver and, and, you know, other people had cut ties with South Africa. So it's not as clear cut as it may have looked from the outside. There were certainly, there was, a, you know, some rugby tours and all sorts of weird things going on. Obviously some of their golfers were playing. So um, from that from that uh, theory, what you had is people with money in South Africa trying to get people to do things. I think I think the way that the West Indians were treated, especially once you read um, uh, the book on it, I've forgotten the author's name, um, but it's obviously, uh, you know, uh, about the West Indian rebels. The one thing that you really get to understand is that, and, and I think I know this having worked with cricket, not all cricketers really understand politics. And I don't mean that in a way of they don't know who to vote for. You know, one of the players didn't know what apartheid was. He he lived in Jamaica. Um, he was a cricketer. It just wasn't something. I think it might have been Richard Austin. Uh, he just didn't know what it was. Others knew what it was, but like didn't really think about it in geopolitical ways or or whatever. And you know, we there were certainly West Indians who knew and shouldn't have gone. And there are other West Indians who didn't know. Arjuna Ranatunga signed up for Sri Lanka's tour. Uh, a, a rebel tour, and he was talked out of it. Oh, sorry, I've forgotten the name, but it was might have been Sri Lanka's first Test captain who talked him out of it. But but whoever it was said to him, "Don't go. This might ruin your career." And I don't think, and I think in in, in Arjuna's case, he was probably smart enough to hear that and understand it in a way that some of those West Indian cricketers weren't. But if you go back, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but Richard Austin at that stage, he was probably only ever going to be a fringe player, really good player. Like in any other era, he'd be one of the best West Indian players now. Um, uh, but he was getting, I think it was 50 to to $100 to play in ODI in the West Indies. I think he got 20 grand to go and play for Kerry Packer. And I think he got 100 grand uh, to go and, pay, go and play in the Rebel League in South Africa. I mean... How do, you know, it's all well and good to say morals first, hundred grand. It's just huge, huge money. And they were ostracized when they got back and it did ruin some of their lives. And some of them have gone on to have, you know, decent careers afterwards as professionals in other leagues. Um, some of, you know, uh, Franklin Stevenson, 
is one that comes to mind. Some went off to live and work in America and other places as well. But for a lot of those guys, they kind of stayed back at home and were seen as, as, as what they were. And uh, I don't think, and this is, you know, if you go back to the people who wanted South Africa, they were doing that. Some of them were doing it for political uh, purposes. And, you know, Ali Barker's uh, part in this is quite interesting, I think, considering he sort of stuck around in South African cricket. Um, but but the other thing is that there were probably people who just put money in because they just wanted proper cricket back in South Africa as well. So uh, there's no doubt that if you go back to the Basil D'Oliveira case, there's some cricket was huge. I mean, here's my favourite fact about Basil D'Oliveira, that the South African government sent spies to go and watch um, uh, him play for Derbyshire. <laughs> just love the idea of a South African spy, like in a in a coat, you know, with a with a phone in his shoe. That's an old reference. Uh, if you're not old enough to know what I'm talking about, there, sorry. Um, uh, what you know, and then like you know, filtering back information of it was a scratchy 34. Um, uh, he was dropped twice, but he was just starting to get good in the end, and then he was run out. I don't know. There's something great about having a a spy um, from the South African government watching Basil Dolorea play in a, in a dreary midweek county game um, on some dodgy, sticky wicket. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I do think that uh, I, I I understand why the West Indians acted the way that they did, but if you look at Mike Hazeman, Greg Shippard is just being named coach of cricket in New South Wales, right, <laughs> a rebel player. Um, uh, you know, Gatting, Gooch, Boycott, all these guys – you, a lot, so many people got their lives together and the guys who came from the, the least that needed the money the most were the ones who then got dis, discharged the quickest. And and I understand the whole theory that, you know, and that West Indian cricketers who are friends of mine have said before the whole, they should have known better. In some cases they should have, in some cases they just didn't. Um, and so it is a really sad story uh, and it's certainly worth going out and finding the book on it. Anyway, that's the end of the Patreon questions. Thank you everyone for that. Let us see what we have in the room. So the Endeavour Hills thing, I don't think I've talked about this yet. So Endeavour Hills is a cricket club in Melbourne who play sub-district cricket. So Melbourne's quite a weird situation in that we have a district competition, which is like grade cricket, so the grade cricketer. Um, and, and and then we have this thing called sub-district. They're both played on, on, on turf wickets. And generally, sub-district in the old days would be like if you were a young player and you had a bit of talent, you probably start off with your sub-district team when you were 13 or 14, then you go on to district cricket. But because it only plays on Saturdays, a lot of players from district cricket then come back and play um, sub-district cricket uh, when when they're no longer on the verge of playing for Victoria. So, for instance, my club, uh, uh, Coburg, after I finished playing for Coburg, uh, Mick Lewis uh, was our coach. So you see the sort of level of players that play there. It's not like a normal club competition but it's also not a district competition. Anyway, the weird thing is that, you know, you would turn up to playing games and Ravi Ratnaiki would be playing against you in this, this club cricket competition. And there were, you know, not that many former internationals, but I think recently Michael Beer uh, was playing for someone. He got suspended for hitting someone on the field, I think, uh, or something happened. I haven't followed that news story up, uh, but something happened with Michael, Michael Beer in a game. And so you do get a lot of sort of bigger name players. Endeavour Hills, uh, <laughs> their 11 uh, was absolutely um, stock. It was just, it's one of the more uh, crazy cricket 11s you'll ever see in club cricket. Um, I'm not sure if any, I've ever seen anyone uh, do this before. Um, let's have a look. 
So it was Chris Gale, Shoaib Malik, uh, Dawood Milan. They had um, uh, Dimith Karunaratni, Tilikaratni, Dilshan, and I'm missing someone. Was it Pereira? Oh, this is over the last few weeks. Some of the people that they've had in club games, um, some of the people that they've had, uh, Tiramani was another one, and Saranga Lakmal. <laughs> These are some of the signings they've had. And what I said is this weird half club, half district competition. And I should say that as someone who played in, in sub-district cricket and sat on committees, I never understood how these teams were paying these players so much money when there was um, uh, when there was no crowds. Like there was no way to make this money back. And even the Endeavour Hills uh, crowds, or even when they're having those games where they had everyone, you're still looking at one and 2,000 people. My, my local club football team used to get more people down and didn't have any stars, right? So it's really interesting that this kept happening. And then, of course, there's now a fraud case where it looks like one particular person involved uh, with, with that club um, uh, you know, uh, may have committed frauds. And then, of course, that's being linked back to the players. And I, I don't know the full details. I haven't seen any of the more recent articles on them. But it's a remarkable situation when you, you look at this and there's so much uh, money involved in those leagues, but there doesn't seem to be really uh, a reason for these players to get paid money. But, you know, imagine turning up at your local club team um, to play and you've got Dilshan and Karuna Ratney and Tiramani batting one, two, three, which I think might have happened in one of the games. <laughs> um, it really is just a phenomenal situation. Anyway, uh, I thought you, you all might like that. Uh, Arnav, here he is. Oh, he's, got, he's got a picture and everything now. Arnav, you there, ma'am? I'm, uh, can you hear me? I can. What's your question? Yeah, my question is like, uh, uh, like, before, like uh, in the next seven years, we have about seven ICC tournaments. And uh, like, I love ICC tournaments. I, I think so. It's the best thing. But if we have these tournaments, like, uh, but do you think that it, it hampers the teams or transition and like everything uh, having like so many like seven ICC tournaments in seven years? So you're saying if a team's not doing very well, um, that having so many tournaments is shit, essentially. I mean, like, uh, for example, like India couldn't actually go get over Rohit and Virat because they were like, we had to take them to Australia. I mean, obviously Virat worked out quite well in Australia. But uh, like a team like New Zealand, who's like, it's a very core 11, like like if in two, three years, all their core players go away from franchises and retire, essentially like New Zealand like can go shit quite, quite fast, do you think? Yeah, but I don't think, I don't think that necessarily has as much to do with the World Cups, if that makes sense, right? So, so if you look at England, I think we knew that England were there and thereabouts as one of the best two or three T20 teams before this World Cup. But they'd only played in one tournament and got five injuries um, and, and you know, bombed out in the semifinal. And then we hadn't seen them since 2016, right? So it can go both ways. You can be a really good team and have no tournaments. I, I think now, because there are so many tournaments, if you can manage to have a decent team over the next, whatever it is, seven-year period that you said, I think you're a really good chance of winning a tournament. If you don't, I think there's good news in that. Put it this way. The West Indies got bombed out of the 2021 World Cup, if they had to wait four years for another World Cup, they might have just uh, sort of shrugged their shoulders and thought, ah, these things happen. 
chances are now Jimmy Adams and Ricky Skerritt and whoever else is involved in that, you know, in in the, in the top level of decision making is having to really think about what they're going to have to do going forward. Now they might struggle in the next couple of World Cups, but they can't hide, right? You, I think you can hide in bilateral tournaments, right? So when West Indies lost to Ireland at home, right? That should, and not to mention, they didn't just lose to Ireland at home. They lost to Ireland in a series where Ireland's batting coach had to come out of retirement and play for them, right? Um, when that happened, I don't remember, I'm not saying that West Indian fans didn't get upset, but they didn't get as upset as they did when they bombed out of this World Cup. And yet it's a very similar situation, right? So I, I, think, I think consequence cricket should actually help a bad team in that way. Because I don't think you can hide behind, especially if it's anyone can bomb out of one tournament. You know, we we saw India bomb out of the last one and then do better in this one. And anyone anyone can do that. But I think if you're bombing out of two, three, four in a row, you can't hide. So I do think in that situation, maybe it does help. Also, I think there are things you can learn in. It's funny. I, I did an episode with Kate Cross, and she was talking about how World Cups were so different to bilateral tournaments and. It's something that even uh, World Cups are even different to franchise tournaments in that there are so many different things that you need to um, uh, problem solve. And in, in, a, in a franchise tournament, you still go home half the time, right? So home might, might be an artificial ground somewhere, but your groundsman has been involved with it. You understand the conditions. You probably train there beforehand and whatever else. World Cups... Even the home team is is flying around everywhere, right? So it's such a different situation. Uh, So I think there's a lot to be learned. So if you're transitioning, I kind of like the idea of of almost like a heat check. How good are your good young players and, and, um, you know, where are your senior players going um, in in that perspective? So I'm not – I wouldn't be too worried about that. Um, I certainly wouldn't be worried if I was India. I think that's a fantastic situation for India to be in. No, but 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 India are already the best bilateral team in the world, right? The worst thing for India is to go off, and w- this is what used to happen in South Africa, right? They'd lose a World Cup, they disappear, they beat everyone again for three and a half years, they come back to the next World Cup, and they'd lose again. That's the worst case scenario, right? So you would hope that India now have the opportunity to have two years before the next T20 World Cup, right? In those two years, they can, it doesn't, if I'm Raul Dravid, and I'd be saying this to the BCCI, it doesn't matter if we lose because us winning bilaterals is utterly meaningless. Let's try everything for two years, see what works, and then when we know what works, let's double down on that, right? Um, you know, and you might have a similar thing with uh, well, South Africa one day cricket probably don't even have time to do that, but maybe somewhat, something like that, right? The fact that these tournaments are coming a little bit faster, I think, does allow you to uh, you to not hide in bilateral cricket in the way that South Africa used to hide. I just, I just don't believe you can do that anymore. And because of that, I think that's a, for me, if I'm working with a bad team, that's an advantage, right? Now, all I'm using the bilaterals for is match practice, which really Arnav, is what bilateral cricket should eventually be. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. Cheers, mate. Glad you got through eventually there. Will, are you there? Uh, hi, Jeff. My question was just going to be on, Shit, Raul Pindi, and like, how does the PCB allow that? And like, Pakistan need results; they need wins to get to the World Test Championship. England have been like really destroyed 
pitch is also any logic behind making a pitch just seems like terrible idea no i think when they played australia like there was a part of them that perhaps thought that they could out attrition australia right uh i think it's funny watching west indies bowl at australia the other day i think i think people still think of australia as this really aggressive team but that's not really how they've played for a while now uh but perhaps because warner's still at the top and you know australians are still australians that they feel that way uh so against australia i would say it was a bad idea i I don't know how you feel, but you look at the World Test Championship and I kind of feel that your best chance is to have result pitches <laughs> as much as possible, especially because result pitches generally end up in the home team grabbing a bunch of wins. Uh, and so those are, the con- those are the pitches you can control. I had Pakistan down as a potential team to make the World Test Championship finals based on their schedule. And a lot of it was you know, based on Australia and England having to come across where I thought Pakistan would give them tricky pitches. I didn't really think they'd... They'd, they'd rig them or anything, but I thought they'd be pitches in favor of Pakistan. You'd have to say, based on three test matches and one day, <laughs> um, I, I'm doing this after day one, of course, if you're listening on the recording, um, that is not what they've done, right? They've gone the other way with this, and it looks like a horrible, horrible mistake. So, yeah, I'm, I'm on your side. I, I thought after Australia they would have spiced this up. I don't know if you saw the press conference um, beforehand, Will, but uh, Barbara Azam actually said, oh, this pitch will have a bit more life in it than the last one. Based on one day, I would say it has less life in it. I mean, even when the ball's kept low, there was probably a, only one ball when it kept low where it looked dangerous. When it spun, it just looked like you could move your hands with it. It was so slow. I was saying to John Norman, I, I did the TalkSport following on podcast, and um, I was saying there that it's very rare as a shit cricketer, I look at a test match cricket wicket and think to myself, I reckon I could get a couple here, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and and that's what it looked like. So, yeah, I think they've made a mistake. I think if I was involved with Pakistan cricket, I, would, I wouldn't have made, I wouldn't made sure that the pitches were rigged, but I would have made sure that I had result pitches for the six test matches um, that they're playing against these two teams to give themselves a fair chance of winning three or four of those tests. And now, uh, based on what we've seen today, and who knows what will happen in the rest of this test match. But based on what we're seeing today, I means Pakistan aren't going to win any of the test matches of the first four. And that was a huge advantage they had. And they've completely given it up. So even if they somehow bring themselves together and win this series 2-1, which looks almost impossible after one day's cricket, but obviously nothing is. Um, uh, it just, it seems like a stupid, stupid decision. And then on top of that, telling the TV hosts to not say the word flat and not talk about the pitches. It, that's the sort of thing that worked back in the before social media before social media you could get away with that now you just look like you made a mistake and now you're doubling down on it and in the social media age people are just going to mock you over and over again for that and it doesn't make any sense anyway they, they, these pictures are so incredibly flat um uh, that that you know i don't know what words you have to use to describe them to to get past the senses but it's a ridiculous situation that they're in. And I do think Pakistan have made a huge... I thought Pakistan had made a huge error against Australia. Um, and based on one day of this test match, it looks like they've they've gone back to it again. Just a build-off. How connected actually is like the board and the players in general the world? Yeah. But it's obviously, like with Pakistan, it's more like they kind of have an idea, but they it, look, everyone's different. And also, some pitches, it doesn't matter what you do, they go back to, you know, <laughs> they just do what they want. Um, uh, you know, some pitches are really easy to doctor and some pitches are not easy to doctor. I, I remember 
talking to some county cricketers, and they said one of the things about Somerset um, down at Taunton was it was a really easy pitch to doctor. You could kind of whatever you wanted that pitch to do, it would just do for you. You want it to be the flattest batting pitch in the world, bam. You want it to seam around. You want it to spin on day one. We could do that too. Um, not all pitchers play that sort of game. A lot of curators and groundsmen, you know, just don't want to be involved in in, in that at all. Um, I don't know if you've seen on social media though that you know the scores in that ground for first class cricket. Do not suggest this is the normal pitch. So unless there was a freak weather occurrence, which I'm not aware of, uh, which, which is always possible, um, uh, or the pitch just he, there's something went wrong with it, I would say that someone at the PCB wanted this to be a flatter batting pitch, and a, a, you know perhaps on that wicket flatting batting, there's no difference. Sorry, there's it might be one of those pitches where there's no middle ground, if that makes sense. So you either have a pitch with a little bit of help for the bowlers, or you have a pitch with no help for the bowlers. Which might seem weird, but you know, someone who's curated wickets before, sometimes those sorts of things can happen. Uh, but yeah, the 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 ICC should be involved with pitch curation at this stage, and uh, we have now we now have enough Hawkeye information on cricket pitches and enough information on first class pick cricket pitches to be able to say, okay, well, we know what this pitch should be and what it is at its best. Can we just make sure that this happens all the time? So, you know, you would still get a spinning pitch in Gaul or, or, or Chennai. Um, you'd still get a bouncy pitch at the Wacker and, and all those sorts of things. But you would have a more, you know, if that's what the pitch is supposed to be, then we're going to try and make it so that happens every single time and those sorts of things, rather than at the moment, it's all a bit haphazard and you're never quite sure if the curator is fully involved in, <laughs> in some of the decisions and, uh, you know, it's not like curators are on millions and millions of dollars and, uh, you know, and, you know, some of the curators uh, get paid good money, but it's it's not, you know, the best job around the world. Some of the curators also are not brilliant at what they do that we have, you know, there are certainly parts of the world where I would say that there are curators who get the job because of their relationships with boards or that they're former players or whatever. It, I just think this is another thing where we can kind of take these decisions away from uh, cricket boards and it's a very old-fashioned way of thinking about it as well. So one thing I was told, and I, I, I don't know how much this stands up, but when, when bowlers started taking more wickets and we started sniffing around, one thing that we were told by CEOs when, you know, when we were asking those questions was that they realized that the pitches where people talked about them the most were the friendlier ones to bowlers, the ones that were really, really slanted towards batting. Yes, you might get a day four and a day five crowd, um, in and if you've got England traveling over, you might get more drinking from the Barmy Army, not so much an issue in this test, um, and all those sorts of things. But that it didn't actually work from a tourism. No one wanted to travel to anywhere and watch people batting on a flat pitch for th five days. And no one wanted to talk about it on social media, all the sorts of things that cricket boards need to think about. It does feel like Pakistan's sort of stuck in an old model, um, which is what cricket boards were doing up until 2016, 2017. There's no doubt that that, that happened. So um, it seems like a huge mistake to me, but I don't know why it's a mistake. I'm not over there to be able to ask the questions. Uh, but thanks, Will. Keshuv, you there? Yeah, I, uh, my question is uh, regarding the approach that England has been uh, taking since last summer. So... Uh, since it was successful in England and now uh, going forward, I assume they're going to have this approach around the world. What kind of message does this send to, you know, batters like Hasib Ramid, who's, you know, uh, a very old school sort of a batsman or other people like that? I mean, do they think that 
do we need to like now alter our batting style according to Brendan McCullum's and Stokes's ideology, or do they think that okay, you know, we we don't really have a chance now to get in the team even if he make runs? Well, Hamid's just got to make runs. I don't. I mean, he just hasn't made enough runs. Uh, he came back on a very small spurt of form. He's going to make, make runs consistently, I think, ever to get back in the England side. I don't think they're going to take another punt on him. I could be wrong, uh, but I don't think they'll ever take another punt on him unless he's absolutely dripping with runs. Um, uh, for the rest of the England players, they were told, uh, they've been told uh, via the press and in private, you want to play for England, this is what we expect of you now. Um, so England is certainly looking at that kind of mould. The interesting thing is that <laughs> it's still not what they're doing all the time. So, you know, when the ball was moving around in that South African series, you know, we, we saw some innings where they certainly attacked more, but we saw some innings where they couldn't attack and, you know, where they were dismissed cheaply and everything else. So far, what we've seen is if the pitch and the ball is not doing that much, uh, that that style works. Whether that means going ahead, they'll need anchors like a T20 side, right, who can also play when the ball's doing something else or players who can play with two gears. You know, we know that Zach Crawley can only play on flat pitches at the moment. You know, he's going to have to develop that other side of his batting. You know, is Ben Duckett someone who'll be able to play, you know, when the ball's nipping around or bouncing around his head or all those sorts of other um, options as well. So I still think there'll be other positions out there, but there's no doubt that England uh, – even before this test match, had to, during the last summer, had said, this is what we're going with. It comes from the fact that they their old style wasn't working. They, they couldn't keep picking guys who were going to average 32 at a strike rate of 35, right? So they're trying something new. It's been successful in fits and bursts at the moment. It would have been really interesting to see how they would have gone against New Zealand and India if the ball wasn't shit. Um, just because of what we saw against South Africa. Um, but you can certainly see in certain situations why it makes sense and it works. And uh, we we did see, I can't remember what year it was, but I think it was around 2012, 2011, 2013, that the global run rate rose. And that was probably the flattest pitches we've ever seen. Some of the averages that top order batters were, were, were knocking out at that point was absolutely just out of this world, top level averages. And the run rate went up quite quite significantly. And I did wonder if we were going to see players play in that white ball style. And then, of course, they didn't. And then it, the whole thing fell apart and no one could make any runs. Um, so maybe that was the first sort of canary in the coal mine type situation where had we looked back and we were like, you know, on flat pitches, you can actually score at a reasonable rate. And the only reason that we didn't have that before is because when players started scoring quicker, that's when Michael Vaughan and others started putting out sweepers everywhere. And at that stage, people wouldn't take sweepers on. And I think, you know, you watch England play today, they're not so worried about sweepers anymore. And that, that's because of T20 cricket and one-day cricket and everything changing. So perhaps now you're in a situation where even the sweepers don't slow you down as much as they used to. So uh, today, like... After the uh, first day's play, Shapin Mushtaq was asked in a conference whether he thinks Pakistan would also reply in the same sort of manner. And he said, no, we stick to our strength. So do you think if this England approach works and, you know, uh, around the world for them, do you think other teams would follow the suit or to each his own? I think if we saw a lot of teams try it, I think they would be shit at it. Um... <laughs> 
have a look at Australia's run rate compared to everyone else. Everyone else was trying to do what Australia did and couldn't, and in fact gave away a lot of cheap wickets. The other thing is that England is the best fast accumulator in white ball cricket, right? They're the, in T20, and but specifically one-day cricket, uh, no one has ever scored it more than a run ball in one-day cricket before England, and they do. They do it consistently, and they do it with their replacement players, and they do it with everyone, not just with their full-strength team against poor teams. Um, so what other team in the world is set up to be able to do this would be my question, and I don't really see another team out there um, who has the ability to be able to do that. We have seen Travis Head play in a more aggressive style. Um, you know, perhaps if Tristan Subs and Dewell Brevis come in, uh, we'll see something from that point of view. Um, but maybe you know, uh, Patrice Shaw, like this Patrice Shaw on Shred India. Yeah, I mean, Rohit did it a little bit, I suppose. He's, he's had some good strike rates in some of his games, hasn't he? Um, but to be able to do it from one to seven, you're talking about one player. You know, the amount of players in the history of Test cricket with a strike rate over 80, it's, very, it's not very many. And there's a reason. It's hard to consistently do this. Um, I mean, Brendan McCullum doesn't have a particularly high strike rate in Test cricket. So I, I think that I still think there's nothing that I've seen today that makes me think it's any less conditions-based or to make me think that it's any more, there's any other team out there that is ready to be able to do it whole scale, uh, 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 you know, whole, whole scale, full scale um, uh, in the way that England has. Just because I don't think other teams have those sorts of players. Um, all the, you know, it also, it came, this is something we don't talk about very much, but West Indies fast, four fast bowlers, right? That came from necessity. It didn't come from Clive Lloyd going, what's the best tactic I have available to me? Clive Lloyd went to Australia, uh, Tomo at full strength, and Lily um, just back from injury, I think. Absolutely, probably bo both two of the fastest bowlers that had ever lived at that stage, peppered the shit out of them, right? They then come back and they're playing, I think it was the test at Port of Spain, and India chased 400 against their spinners. Even then, if you have a look at it, it takes a long time for Clive Lloyd to pick five, sorry, four fast bowlers. I can't remember how many tests it was, but I did it. It's in my book. I think it's like 18 before they start doing it, right? You go back to Australia um, batting fast. So we know Australia from 1995 onwards are basically the world's best team, but they're not winning that many tests, right? And it takes them a long time to work out. Do you know what? Part of the problem here is that we're just not scoring quick enough. If we score quick enough, no other team will be able to outlast us if they have to bat for three days, right? It took a long time for Australia to do that. And if you look at England, they've been batting really poorly for a long time before they've gone to this sort of method. You'd have to find another team that A, has five batters who can do this, B, um, has the, the reason, the reason, you know, I was going to say reason detra, that's probably the wrong term, but the, the, the motivation to do it. Um, and then C, Early on, they'd have to have really good conditions to be able to do it in, right? You wouldn't want to go to a, you know, some of those Indian and South African pitches of late, turn up and try and do it. Try and do it in Adelaide, you know, with the pink ball nipping around everywhere, right? Like, I just don't think it would work. Um, and, and so, you know, almost, it almost has to work straight away. So in some ways, the best thing that happened for Bazball is the fact that those, um, those Jukes balls were absolute shit. So now they've got some confidence behind it. And hopefully, if they're going to use it properly, they should pick and choose when they use it. Sometimes they're just going to have to bat normally. And sometimes they're going to do it when they're behind the eight ball. Um, and sometimes they're going to do it when they're ahead of the eight ball, you know, 
all those sorts of different things. Can you be ahead of an eight ball? I'm not sure. Um, but from that perspective, a lot of things would have to go right for another team to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you said other teams don't seem to have that kind of uh, player pool. But do you think maybe like the next crop of Indian players, like if you see uh, in future uh, some, some some people like uh, Gary Shaw and, you know, Ayer Pant and Sarfraz, all these like five, six players, probably they, if anyone comes close to that maybe in future, that's one Place we can look at. Oh uh, yeah, I mean possibly you could have you could have a stretch of aggressive Australian players or South African players. Like someone else could do it in a future crop, but would they want to do it? Is the other question, right? I don't think. I, I don't know. I just watched a lot of teams copy Australia's method, um, and not win, <laughs> right? And so, I would if I was working for another team right now, I'd be like maybe we can find a method that works for us rather than England's doing this, so we should try and do it. And I think that if, if you, that Indian team, let's say that is the next crop of Indian test players and India isn't winning, they can probably go with that method, I think. You know, uh, we've certainly seen Sewag do it before. Um, you know, it, it's possible on, on the old style Indian pitches, maybe not the new style Indian pitches to play that way. I think if you just go with it because England's doing it, um, I, I wouldn't want to say you're definitely going to fail, but I would say that more likely or not that it would not work for you. Whereas if you're doing it out of desperation, well, then that's a different situation. And, you know, it, it, you know, when you're watching a team get smashed around in a white ball game and they just keep passing the ball around until it finally works with someone, right? And, and that bowler on that day just makes it work. At the moment, I still think baseball is more like that than anything else. But if they manage to be able to do it in a way that they could upset bowlers on good pitches, uh, when the bowlers are actually in the game, then that's get completely game changing. And at that stage, if I was working for another team, I'd be like, yeah, okay, we need to, can we do this? Or can we do a version of this? Or what is our version of this? Um, but I do think that there is a, a string of things that have happened to English cricket to allow them to do this. Uh, anyway, thanks for your question. I've got one from Alan in the chat and he says, I remember you pointing out a while ago that Ollie Pope's numbers against spin weren't very good. Have you seen any change in his playing style or stats to make you think he's improved this aspect? So I watched him today actually because, uh, I mean, you know, he was playing young untried spinners or untried spinners and on a pitch that even when it spun wasn't particularly in the spinner's favor. I'm still not convinced. I want to see him certainly towards the end of the game uh, uh, play them. And obviously also by the time he came into bat today that Pakistan were emotionally drained. Um, at the moment, I haven't seen anything, but I, this was a series I really wanted to watch a lot of Oli Pope batting for this reason, but it's probably more towards the end of the game. It, the interesting thing about Pakistan is we, it is Asian conditions and there are some things that are very traditionally Asian, don't get great bounce in a lot of places and um, uh, that they have the sort of Asian style flat pitches at times, which are, you know, slightly different than the sort of flat pitches you might get in England or South Africa or New Zealand. However, you know, I, the one thing I would say about Pakistan pitches is that there's a reason why the Dusra and reverse swing and the, the finger wrong and, and the wobble ball were all invented in Pakistan. And that's because the pitches do nothing. For a big period of time. And I don't think my my query with Olu Pope against spin was twofold. 
It was one, how he would go against the world's best spinners, being that he scored so slowly against first-class spinners in um, counter cricket. And then the second one is how he would play on spinning pitches. Based on what I've seen today, um, I haven't seen either of those two things happen. Uh, perhaps later on in the game or later on in the series, maybe not, they may not, not need him to bat later on in this game. Um, but I like the way he batted today. Um, but yeah, I don't think anything's massively changed. I haven't seen any. I mean, you know, sometimes you can make a very subtle change with your technique and it's very hard to pick up. Um, and then you have the Steve Smith one where it's so noticeable, it's impossible not to pick up. Um, I haven't noticed anything specifically in Ollie Pope's game. The only thing I would say is I'd be interested to know what his normal sweep rate was and what his sweep rate was today specifically. Um, I felt that they came in and they thought that was going to be their day one plan against the Pakistani spinners. Um, yeah, that worked. Anyway, thank you all very, very much. I will uh, be back again next week for another one. But, you know, huge shout out to everyone who comes in the room and asks the chats. Remember, you can follow me on Spotify Live and then get a ping. Um, and we may not be on Spotify Live forever. We may have to take this over uh, to uh, another platform eventually. But while I'm here, um, certainly uh, if you can get the app, do that. If not, just listen to it when it comes out or watch it when I'm on YouTube. But thanks again for all your questions and support, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa, and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Music